Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in chapter 23, God gave his people seven feasts of the Lord that they were to commemorate and observe during each year. The first four of those were celebrated in the springtime. And the fourth one of those really kind of demanded that you be a mathematician to figure out when you were to celebrate it. What? Yeah, actually, it's called the Feast of Weeks. And it's called the Feast of Weeks because you had to count seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits and then add a day to know when to celebrate this Feast of Weeks or Shavuot as it's called. So you would start on the day of the Feast of First Fruits and count one, seven, two, seven, three, seven, four, seven, five, seven, six, seven, seven, seven. That's 49 days and add one more to get to 50. And on the 50th day, that's when you would celebrate the Feast of Weeks. It's a lot of work to get there, but it's one of the big three feasts of the Lord, which God gave to his people. Passover was one, the Feast of Weeks was two, and the Feast of Tabernacles was three. So what made this observance so important? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So, um, we are still doing our uh, look at series, our look into the feasts of the Lord, as it were. And uh, we have said that there are seven of those that God gave his people. Seven feasts of the Lord, or appointed times. Um, again, appointed times, like an appointment, you know, a certain place to be uh, at a certain time to do a certain thing. And uh, that is where God has said to his people, on these seven feasts at these seven times of the year, I want you to be in a certain place to do a certain thing for a certain reason. And that is to remember me, to come closer to me, to remind you of what I've done for you, to worship me, and to just be reminded of this covenant that we have, this relationship that we have together. And, uh, and to come closer to me is really the point. You know, we come to church on Sunday. Why? Because we want to grow closer to God. Um, I often use the analogy of it's like we, we walk out of church on Sunday and we're like a sponge that's filled. And, and, and we're, we're you know, filled to the brim with the water of, of the Spirit of God. And uh, we go through Monday and the, and the sponge gets squeeze a little bit and Tuesday it squeezes a little bit. By the time we get to next Sunday, our sponge is completely wrung out and we got to come back to church on Sunday to get reinvigorated again and get our sponge refilled so we can make it through the, the following week. And so we come to church to get that spiritual invigoration, to learn, to grow, to be reminded of the love we have for God, of the love he has for us, of what he did for us and does for us and what he asks of us and how we can Uh, serve him and how we can reflect him into the world, how we can take what he's done for us and give back to him. And so we do that. That's that's why we come to church on Sunday. And so these appointed times for 
the people of Israel, the Jewish people of that day, was much like that. The common to just, these were times to grow closer to God, to learn more of him, to be obedient to him, to, to love him, to re be reminded of his love for them, and to show their love back to him. So <clears throat> we're, we've done the first three. So today we're at the fourth um, appointed time. The first one, remember, Passover which takes place on the 14th of Nisan. Uh, that was the according to the Jewish calendar. It's in April time frame usually, April to May. Um, and the theme of Passover is redemption. Redemption, the blood of the lamb, how the blood of the lamb redeemed the people from slavery in Egypt and how Jesus is our Passover lamb, uh, is our Paschal lamb, redeems us from slavery to sin. <clears throat> and then... Following the next day, on the 15th of Nisan, for seven days through the 21st, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, the idea of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is sanctification. Sanctification means uh, learning to live as best we can without sin in our lives. That unleavened bread does not have yeast, and yeast was symbolic of sin. And so unleavened bread is, uh, is life without sin. And as Christians, we know that unleavened bread represented Jesus, that he was our unleavened bread without sin um, and died for us uh, in, in that way. Even though we had sin, we deserved to die. We didn't. He was sinless, and uh, he did not deserve to die, but he did for us out of his love for us. So we have redemption, Passover. We have sanctification, the Feast of unleavened bread, unleavened bread. And then we have the Feast of First Fruits. We talked about last week how there's some controversy about that. Um, that uh, today uh, the Jewish people celebrate uh, the Feast of First Fruits on the 16th of Nisan, the day after uh, the first day of unleavened bread. So they have Passover on the 14th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th, and then the Feast of First Fruits on the 16th. But we said that really isn't what God wanted in His uh, in, in what He gave us uh, in Leviticus 23. He talks about that it's the day after a Sabbath, a real Sabbath, a Saturday. And so what it should be is that the Feast of First Fruits is the day after the first Sabbath after Passover. So you have whatever day Passover is, the following Sabbath, the next day is the Feast of First Fruits. And we said how this is about resurrection, and the Feast of First Fruits is you're bringing in the first fruits of the barley harvest from a, a, a dead world. The world is dead in the winter. It looks like there's no life out there. And yet in the spring, the barley harvest is the first harvest of spring. Life comes from death in the world and in agriculture and how Jesus was actually resurrected on a Sunday, which was that at that time during when, when it was him, he was crucified on Passover. He was in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread the first day as you know, the sinless sacrifice for us. And then on that Sunday, early in the morning, the, the women came to the tomb and he was resurrected. He was not there in the tomb. And that was on the Feast of First Fruits. And he is the first fruit of the resurrection. So that's what, you know, we have redemption, we have sanctification, we have resurrection. So now we come to the fourth uh, feast of the Lord, and it is called the Feast of Weeks. And uh, the reason, it, well, we'll read why it's the, called the Feast of Weeks. So, and in, 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 in the Jews call it Shavuot, not how you pronounce it, Shavuot, 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 I don't know. <laughs> We'll see, a, we'll see a video here, and he'll tell us how to pronounce it. But Shavuot, Shavuot means weeks. And so why is it a Feast of Weeks? So let's look at, if you have Leviticus uh, chapter 23, we're going to read what uh, God said when he gave this feast to his people, what it was about, and why they do it. Now, Shavuot, Shavuot, that's right. Shavuot, the theme of Shavuot is evangelization. Uh, the Feast of Weeks is a harvest feast. Originally, originated as a as a harvest celebration, and uh, it 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 represents 
we'll talk about that in a minute. But but there is a harvest that's part of Shavuot, and so Shavuot, the theme of it is evangelization. In other words, we're harvesting the crops of the the, the land, but symbolically, what it means is spiritually to harvest souls for God, to harvest souls for the Lord. So just as we harvest the fruit of the land, we're to harvest the fruit of people's hearts for God. So that's that's the idea of Shavuot. So let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, it's going to start at verse 15. So it says, um, from the day after the Sabbath, okay, there we go. So we have the Sabbath, which is Saturday. The day after the Sabbath is Sunday, or that is the Feast of First Fruits. So from the day after the Sabbath, which will be Sunday, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that is the Feast of First Fruits. Remember, they brought the barley, uh, sheaf of barley, and they waved it before the Lord. That was what happened on the Feast of First Fruits. So from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So see what happens is it's you count. You have to count seven full weeks. So that's why they call it the Feast of Weeks. Because it's, it's a, it's a, it's you have to count seven weeks after the feast of first fruits. You have to count seven full weeks. So you're counting week, week, week. So this is the feast of weeks. That's why it's called feast of weeks. However, when you do seven weeks and then you add a day, which is what you do here, count off seven, count off fifty, count off seven full weeks, count off fifty days. So it's seven weeks plus a day. 49 plus a day is 50. So that's why it's called Pentecost, too, is because in Greek, and of course the New Testament was written in Greek, in Greek, 50th is Pentecost. So Pentecost means 50th, and Shavuot means weeks. So that's why it has two different names, basically. One is the Greek name, one is the Hebrew name. Okay, so then you present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast. Now that's something different, isn't it? Before you're baking unleavened bread, right? The barley flour and the little cake you were making from that was without leaven, without yeast. This is with yeast. So you bring it as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present this with... uh, Seven with present with this bread, seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. So the... Uh, the uh, feast that we're talking about here with the Feast of Weeks is uh, it involves counting and and what they do today even in Jewish congregations is they do what they say they count the Omer so that is basically they count from the uh, first fruits the day of first fruits to the Shavuot to the Feast of Weeks and every day for that 50-day period they have what's basically like a home devotional. And they read it. It has a scripture passage. It has a prayer. It has like a little devotional thought. So they count the Omer every day for 50 days. They count the Omer, count the Omer, count the Omer until they get to Pentecost. So I wanted to show you in, um, I'll take one of those and pass it. I wanted to show you how 
this is counted. So uh, because it's kind of cool to, to see it um, to see it you know written out here and and demonstrated in a calendar. So this is for 2022. This is your 2022 calendar. So if you, you may have to share, I got, I may not have enough for everybody. You may have to share them. So everybody get one. Have enough? Okay, good. All righty then. So this year in 2022, Passover is on April the 15th. So that's where we're going to start our counting. So Passover is on the 15th. Now this, interestingly, would have been the exact same way it would have been done during Jesus' crucifixion. The exact same, because on on that time when he was crucified, Friday was the Passover. That means Saturday is the first day of unleavened bread. That means Sunday... And I'm not saying I'm not saying it was exactly the same April like this, but this was the way it was set up with Friday being Passover, Saturday being the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 16th, and then the 17th because this is the first. The, so if Passover is the 15th, the first Sabbath after the Passover is the 16th, the Saturday, and then the first day after that first Sabbath is Feast of First Fruits, right? So Friday Passover, 15th, the 16th, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the 17th, that Sunday, is the Feast of First Fruits. Now, we have to count now seven full weeks after the first, the day of First Fruits before we get to Shavuot. So you count the 17th as the first day, so if you count seven days, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, then that first week ends on the 23rd, right? Then the second seven ends on the 30th. The third seven ends on May 7th, the fourth on May 14th, the fifth on May 21st, the sixth on May 28th. The seventh seven, the seventh week ends on Saturday. That would be a Sabbath day. The seventh day would be the 4th of June. That would be the seven sevens, the seven weeks. And then you add one more day to get the 50th day, which means June the 5th will be Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and Pentecost. And that is exactly the way it works. Actually, this year, the 15th of April is Good Friday. The 17th of April is Easter. And June the 5th is Pentecost. Does it always line up? Doesn't always, doesn't always line up like that, no. Because for the for the Jews, if um, if let's say Passover was the twelfth of April, then the first fruits would be the thirteenth. I mean, uh, unleavened bread would be on the thirteenth. Then their uh, their first fruits would be on the fourteenth. Then they start counting seven from there. So that wouldn't always be on a Sunday for them. The feast of first fruits today, or the feast of um, uh, the Feast of Weeks today is not always on a Sunday. It is, so happens to be this year it is, does because of the way it lines up. But it's not always. However, it should always be if they were doing it correctly. So, uh, But that's what it sets up this year. So you have Passover on the 15th, first day of Feast of Elven Bread on the 16th, first fruits on the 17th, and then seven sevens plus one, June the 5th is Pentecost or Shavuot at the Feast of Weeks. So that's the way it works out this. So that's how that's how it's done. Can you go back on a calendar, a perpetual calendar, and look at what it was for Jesus? You probably could yeah. if you really wanted to, yeah. But 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 what we do know is on on, on the day that Jesus was, it was set, it was Friday, Saturday. Wouldn't it be one? What? You'd have to know what. Well, that's tough. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, was it AD six? Was it a? Yeah, you don't we don't really know. Is it twenty eight? <laughs> okay. Well, let, oh, so you, so we kind of started. There wasn't like when Jesus is born. Well, generally accepted to be about four BC. Yeah, it's not exact. It's there's not exact like one AD. Herod died in four BC. Yeah, when you know it's yeah when when the different people have different time frames of that. But but what we do know, regardless of what the actual dates were, we do. I mean the actual 
you know, time of year. We do know that with Jesus, it would have been Nisan on the 14th of Nisan. It would have been the 15th of Nisan. It would have been the 16th of Nisan, whatever that days those were. And it would have set up as a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, obviously, uh, for him. So, uh, so that's the way it worked out. But that's the way, that's the way it's counted. That's the way it's done. So you can take any, any year and, you can go through and you can count it, and it'll be exactly the same from Passover to Pentecost. So that's so the way. So we should all wear red on June fifth, right? June fifth, Pentecost. Yeah. A lot of churches today don't make really a big deal of Pentecost uh, to speak of, but I mean, there was a time when Pentecost was a very, you know, very big deal, and. Um, you know, so it just depends on the church you're in and what they do. Do but Pentecostal churches make a big deal? Sometimes. Sometimes they do. I see more of the liturgical churches. Yes, the higher churches. Yeah, yeah. they're the ones that really make a big deal out of uh, Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And everything is red, and they got balloons and, you know, the whole mm-hmm. nine yards. Yes, exactly. The, um, you know, the... Um, I don't know, maybe the Lutheran church or the, um, the Episcopal, church. Episcopal church especially yeah. would be, um, be be doing that. So. And the Catholic church uh, is not as ornate as uh, the Episcopal church or Lutherans or, uh, yeah, I mean, any churches. But, yeah, if they, you associate it with the liturgy, that's where they come up with all the stuff. Exactly. Okay, so um, if you look into the description then uh, in Deuteronomy here, you, what does this, does this sound familiar to you? I mean, let's look at it for a minute. So he says um, in verse 16, he says, um, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And then in verse 17, he says, from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two fine flour, uh, a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's from first. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, right. So it sounds an awful lot like the feast of first fruits, doesn't it? So the the feast of weeks and the feast of first fruits. So in verse sixteen, you bring an offering of new grain. Well, before you brought an offering of new grain, right? And now you're bringing another offering of new grain. And in verse 17, you bring loaves made with fine flour. Before you were bringing loaves made with fine flour, now you're again bringing loaves made with fine flour. It says it's a wave offering. It was a wave offering for uh, first fruits. So now it's a wave offering again for the Feast of Weeks. And it says in verse 17, bring the first fruits to the Lord. Well, you had the first fruits back in April with the barley, and now you have first fruits again in June. So how can you have two first fruits? I mean, you have first fruits, you think there's only one of those, right? So how can you have two uh, first fruits and two new grains? How do you have one new grain and another new grain? How's that? You have a new grain in April, and now you have another new grain in June. How's that work? Well, because they're talking about two different crops, that's why. Because in, the, in April, it's the barley harvest, and in June, it's the wheat harvest. So uh, barley is your first fruits of the spring crops. In the spring, when the f- crops come up, it's the barley because it grows faster. It grows, you can plant it in the winter. And so you can harvest the barley in spring. But wheat doesn't grow like that. Wheat grows differently. So wheat is the first fruits of the summer crop. So barley is the spring uh, harvest. And wheat is the summer harvest. But you do, in the Feast of Weeks, harvest just like you do barley. You go out, you mark off when your wheat starts coming up. You go out, you mark a special bit of wheat, and you tie it off. And then when the day comes, you go out and you cut it and you take it to the temple and you present it to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits. And the same idea there. You bring the first fruits to the Lord, and then he will provide the rest afterwards for you uh, as you um, give to him, he will then give to you. Now, how important was the Feast of Weeks? Because we say, we say Passover, that was important, right? And when we get into, uh, I think, Ruth's favorite um, feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, well, that was really important. Well, was the Feast of Weeks really that important? Well, 
If you want to turn, or you can let me just read it to you, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 16, uh, verse 16. So Deuteronomy 16, 16. It says, Three times a year all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, which is what? The temple at this point, right? During Jesus' day, it would have been the temple. So three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the temple. These are the three times. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now remember, we said back in Jesus' day, they kind of incorporated Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together. So when they say Feast of Unleavened Bread here, it, it really means Passover and that feast. So in essence, you, you need to come on Passover. That's the first one. The second one is, look at that, Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So the Feast of Weeks is one of the big three. Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and the third one is the Feast of Weeks. You need to come to Jerusalem. You need to come to the temple. You need to bring this offering of the grain offering, and you need to bring your other offerings that it said there with the rams and the bulls and the goats, which also is reminiscent of what happened at the Feast of First Fruits. You also were bringing the same kinds of animals to be sacrificed as a burnt offering then. So they're very similar to one another. Um, another similarity is that you weren't allowed to make any bread from the barley harvest until you brought the offering to the God to, to God of your first fruits of the barley harvest. So you can't like make bread and eat it and then go and make you have to make the offering first and then you can make your own bread. Same thing with the feast of weeks. You had to first harvest the wheat and bring it to the Lord at the temple and make the offering. Then you could make your own bread from the wheat. You couldn't do it before then. Another similarity is they are both wave offerings. So that means when you bring it to uh, the priest at the temple, he remember we saw it with barley, there's a basket, and you put the barley sheaf in the basket, and you brought the basket to the priest, and he would wave it before the Lord, and then he would toss some of the grain offering onto the temple, and it would burn. And well, the same type of thing happens here with the wheat offering. You bring that to the priest. It's in a basket, I assume. Uh, he takes that, and he, it's, a way, it's the same kind of offering. However, there was one very distinct difference between the barley offering and the wheat offering. Yeast. Yeast, Yeast exactly. So the barley was brought, and the uh, priest would take part of that barley uh, cake or whatever and throw it onto the altar, and it would be a burnt offering. And then they would keep some of the rest of it, which the priests would, would eat. In this case, it says very specifically that the wave offering is, what does it say? For who? For the priests, right? So it says... Right, they are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priests in verse 20. So, you see... You could not burn anything on the altar that had yeast in it. So you can't. The, you couldn't burn the bread that you're bringing on the Feast of Weeks because it has yeast. You weren't allowed to put anything on the altar that had yeast. Because why? Because yeast represents sin, right? And sin can't touch the altar like that. So what would happen there is they would the priest would do the wave offering with the two loaves of wheat bread. And then they would put it aside, and they would eat it later. The priests would eat it later. But it would not be burnt on the, um, on the altar. So that being the case, you could make a case that the barley cake that was brought had no yeast, represented a life without sin that was given on the altar. So that could be representative and symbolic of Jesus, right? Well, though, if you're bringing the two loaves of the wheat harvest with yeast and it's not put on the burnt offering, what would that be representative of? 
Satan or us, right? Us. So the, 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 the two loaves of bread for the Feast of Weeks represent mankind with sin. And the reason there were two is because basically for us today in the church, uh, but even then back then, the idea of that God's kingdom is made out of two types of man, two types of people, two types, two different pieces of mankind, as it were. One is the Jew, and one is the Gentile. So there, people basically are broken into two categories: you're Jewish or you're not. You're Jewish or you're Gentile. But the kingdom of God is big enough for both. And of course, we would say that the kingdom of God through Christ is big enough for both as well, right? So um, that's that's what it was all about back then. That's how they did it back then. Now today, uh, it's no longer an agriculturally based uh, commemoration. Uh, today, they say that Pentecost is the day that Moses brought the law, the Ten Commandments, down to God's people. That was the day that God gave uh, the Ten Commandments to his people. So the idea there is, although there's no historical basis for it, that you know the people left Egypt, they traveled for you know 49 days or whatever, however long it was, they got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments, and on the 50th day, he came down. At the 50th day after they left Egypt, he came down from Mount Sinai and had the Ten Commandments. Now, there's no historical basis to say that that is what happened in terms of that time frame. But that's the way that they uh, celebrate. That's what they celebrate today. They don't celebrate today the wheat harvest. They celebrate today that this is the day that Moses brought the Ten Commandments, that God gave his law to his people. So why did it change? Well, it takes a little history lesson. So if you will bear with me, there's a little bit of reading here, but I found it to be uh, really, really interesting. And so I hope that you'll, I know Mike likes history, so maybe I'll do this for Mike and the rest of you just hang on. So it says, as with Israel's other holy days, customs and traditions were added over time. To understand these changes to Shavuot, a brief review of Jewish history is necessary. Roman rule was never welcome in ancient Judea. It was despised and was an ever-increasing stench in the nose of the Jewish nation. And although a Jewish resistance movement was active for almost a century, it never seriously challenged the Roman eagle's grip until the year AD 66. During the summer heat of that year, the rebellion gained critical mass. Jerusalem was cleansed of Roman rule, and for three years, unlimited Jewish independence was restored. The shockwaves were felt throughout the mighty Roman Empire. Determined to make tiny Judea an object lesson to any other would-be rebel provinces, the Roman general Titus was dispatched to quell the uprising. After a successful Roman siege, Jerusalem was viciously sacked, the temple leveled, and the Jews were pushed out of their capital in AD 70. To ensure Roman control of Judea, a Roman garrison was permanently established on the ruins of Jerusalem. The tremendous importance that the Romans attached to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 can be seen in their extensive media efforts. To proclaim this victory throughout the empire, thousands of coins were minted with the inscription, Judea Capta. I guess that means like Judea, Judea was cap, 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 you know, captured. Uh, these coins depicted Judea as a woman weeping under a palm tree with a fettered Jewish captive standing to the side. It was common for Rome to issue victory coins, but many more were issued for this occasion than for its other conquests. In the city of Rome, the victory was commemorated by the construction of the massive Arch of Titus near the entrance to the Roman Forum. The elaborate relief sculptures over the top of the arch showed a great military parade of triumphant Roman soldiers carrying away the temple treasures and Jewish captives to Rome. Uh, in any, uh, the, the ancient Rome made certain that the example of Judah was prominently kept before the eyes of every citizen. As the intervening years unfolded, the hot coals of Jewish nationalism continued to smolder below the surface. Tensions from the resulting harsh Roman rule 
finally appeared to ease when Hadrian became emperor in AD 117. Hadrian promised to restore Jerusalem and the Holy Temple. The Jewish people hoped that they might at last recover from the terrible destruction of AD 70, but those hopes would soon go up in smoke. Hadrian came under the influence of Greek culture and became more and more anti-Semitic. As he did, his cruel repression of the Jewish people followed in the footsteps of Antiochus Epiphanes almost 300 years earlier. Hadrian outlawed circumcision, Sabbath observance, and synagogue prayers in an attempt to erase Jewish distinctives and assimilate the sons of Israel into the Roman Empire. In AD 130, Hadrian abandoned his promise. Jerusalem would be rebuilt, but only as a Roman city named after his, his chief deities. A house of worship would be built on the Temple Mount, but it would be a pagan shrine patterned after the Temple to, Ju- to Jupiter located in Rome. There seemed to be only one alternative to the desperate situation. With the very existence of the Jewish people at stake, the second Jewish revolt against Rome was ignited. Jewish forces liberated Jerusalem in A.D. 132 under the brilliant leadership of Simon bar Kochba. Yet despite his success, controversy surrounded bar Kochba. Rabbi Akiba, the foremost rabbi of the day and the head of the Sanhedrin, declared bar Kochba the Messiah. This set off a firestorm of debate among the rabbis and forced Jewish believers in Jesus to leave his ranks. It is not mere coincidence that the Jewish coins minted during Bar Kochba revolt bore the picture of the rebuilt temple and the inscription for the liberation of Jerusalem. Messianic fervor gripped much of the nation. Many believed that Israel's golden age was about to begin and that Bar Kochba would be the one to throw off Roman rule rebuild the temple, and lead the nation into a messianic kingdom. But such was not to be the case. Duh! Uh, In AD 133, Roman legions uh, counterattacked with its best force of 35,000 foot soldiers. For three years, the Roman army steadily squeezed the life from the zealot resistance movement. Finally, in AD 135, the uprising was suppressed. Bar Kochba made his last stand and was killed at the stronghold of Batar, As an act of savage brutality, Roman forces desecrated the thousands of dead by forbidding their burial. When the smoke cleared, the legacy of devastation left behind was mind-numbing. It was beyond comprehension. Some 50 fortresses and 985 villages lay in ruins. The death toll in Jewish life from the war topped 580,000. Countless other lives were claimed by starvation and disease. Tens of thousands were sold into slavery. Jews were forbidden to enter their capital city under pain of death. Finally, Jerusalem was rebuilt as the heathen uh, Alia Capitolina, reflected in the second name of Hadrian. His name was Publius Alias Hadrianus, indicating the city's dedication to imperial worship. Capitolina was a reminder that the city was also dedicated to the worship of the Roman gods of the Capitoline Hill, Jupiter, Minerva, and Juno. At the very heart of the paganized city, a temple to Jupiter was erected on Mount Zion, desecrating the site of the Holy Temple. In commemoration, Hadrian issued a Roman victory coin showing a yoke of oxen plowing the new foundations. The momentary flickering candle of Jewish optimism was snuffed out by the Iron Fist of Rome. National hopes for independence and the rebuilding of the temple were dashed. The nation was defeated, her people were dispersed, her homeland devastated. The land was desolate with nothing to harvest, But far more tragic, there was no temple to which to bring the offerings. Without the temple, the continued observance of Israel's feasts as outlined in the Law of Moses was impossible. As the gravity of the situation settled into the national consciousness, despair reigned. And then here is how it changed uh, then the Feast of Weeks. Responding to this dire crisis, the Sanhedrin convened in AD 140 in the village of Yusha near the modern city of Haifa. They decided to divert the focus of Shavuot observance away from agriculture and instead associate it with a historical event to keep the holiday alive. The rabbi suggested that Shavuot was the day that the Torah, Mosaic Law, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was not done arbitrarily. Although the Bible never associated Shavuot with Sinai, this theme was chosen because the giving of the law had also occurred in the third month. Thus, the idea of giving the law and the birthday of Judaism quickly caught on and uh, became the dominant motif of the modern Shavuot. And so Shavuot became known as 
Zeman Matan Toratana, or the time of the giving of our law. So that is the history, and that's how it changed from being a, a commemoration of agriculture to commemoration of giving this law. And so today, when they celebrate the Feast of Weeks in the synagogues, interestingly, they still decorate with like flowers and greenery and all of that, which is kind of a throwback to the agriculture basis of the holiday. But also they say that it represents the greenery and the flowering that was on Mount Sinai back in that original day. So today, as they celebrate it, what they do is they come together, they read scripture passages. Uh, of course, a lot of that is Exodus with Moses and the giving of the law. They also read Ruth. Ruth is important because they see Ruth as a Moabitess, an outsider who chose to embrace the Lord and embrace his law and his word. So that's what, you know, this is what we should all do is even as outsiders, we can embrace God and, and his word and his law. And also her story takes place during the end of the barley harvest, which is that, you know, at the end of the barley harvest, you have the beginning of the wheat harvest. So her story is kind of based on agriculture as well. And today, part of it too, they have traditional food that they eat. So what do they eat? What's their traditional food that they eat during the Feast of Weeks? Let me tell you, this is a holiday I can get behind, okay? Because one of the traditional foods that they have is cheese-related. Cheesecake is big during Shavuot. Yes, I can get behind that. Cheese blintzes. Yes, I can get behind that. Why is it dairy? Because they say the law is like milk and honey to the soul. The law of God is like milk and honey to the soul. So all this dairy. Uh, they also make bread. What kind of bread? Challah bread. You've heard of challah bread? And they make two loaves. Why? Well, because they had to bring two loaves, was dictated in Leviticus 23. So they make two loaves of challah bread. And one of the distinctives of challah bread is, of course, it has yeast. But And also the other thing, the two loaves is that represent the two tablets of God's law. So two, two loaves because God said two loaves. And Leviticus also two loaves to commemorate the two tablets. And, um, and on the top of the challah bread, they have a... A ladder, if you ever looked at it, it's like a seven-rung, of course it has seven, right? A seven-rung ladder, which represents Moses' ascension up to the up to Mount Sinai. So that's what they do today. The one other thing that they do, and we're going to look at a, a quick video here in a minute, is they stay up all night. Like if you're really in, if you're really an Orthodox Jew on the Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, that you stay up all night. Well, why do you stay up all night? Well, because the idea was that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, that the people slept, and they shouldn't have been sleeping. And so today, to make up for it, they stay up all night, and they study the Torah, and they discuss the Torah. But here's the thing that I could get behind. They take periodic breaks over during the night. Why? To have coffee and cheesecake. Okay, so that's a... <laughs> They end in the morning with a recitation of an Amidah prayer. Amidah prayer. The Amidah prayer is the main prayer that Jewish people say. If you see people standing and you see them, they're doing the movement when the Jewish people pray, this is the Amidah prayer because they're moving as they say it. That's part of it. And this is a prayer that they've been saying for 2,000 years. And that, chair, that prayer changes. There's one Amidah prayer like for the Sabbath and one Amidah prayer for each of the holidays. But this is their main prayer. So they end in the morning. They end the, uh, the festival of weeks with this Amidah prayer. So I wanted to take a minute. First, we ask this pretty quickly. Where is Jesus in, the, in Pentecost? Where is Jesus in Pentecost? Well, that's a pretty easy answer, right? Because on Pentecost, that's when God gave the Holy Spirit. That's, and, and that is the beginning of the church. And what is the church all about? believers in Christ. When Peter, on that first Pentecost, when the Spirit came, what did he do when the people all gathered? He preached Jesus. And what happened? About 3,000 people were saved. Where is Jesus in the Feast of Weeks and Pentecost? Jesus is in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church, which is all focused on him and belief in him. So we have a quick little video, about three minutes. Let's go ahead and run that real quick. And this is, once again, our friend Zola Levitt giving us a little bit of insight from his standpoint as a Jewish believer in Christ. We can talk about it last next week, but uh, verse 22, it might be why they read Ruth too, because it talks about reaping the har don't reap the harvest on the edges of your field. Yes, yeah, and that's, that's what she did. Yep. Yeah, that's how she met Boaz, right? 100%. Yeah. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. Since trumpets is pretty small next to <laughs> yeah. We'll do it quickly. Yeah. This is a festival, you know, that different people of different times looked at differently. Uh, the ancient Jews, reading from the Bible from Leviticus 23, had it as a festival of harvest. And of course, they were very agrarian. They brought in their crops in the fall, and it made sense as a harvest festival. But then the modern Jews, as we saw, uh, call it the day the law came from Mount Sinai. No scriptural sanction for that, but it's a... Uh, uh, a tradition, and uh, so they start celebrating the Torah, and I think it's something secular that made that change, because uh, they are not agrarian in general anymore. Some are, but very few, and so it's uh, it, it didn't seem to make sense to have a harvest festival. Of course, it changed in the first century. Harvest was a harvest of souls, but that was lost on those that didn't believe, and so they went on and got up a new tradition to keep an old holiday. And finally, the, the Christian people since the first century out of today uh, see uh, Shavuot or, or, or the Harvest Festival, the Festival of Weeks, as Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit came, when the church was born. It was born that day, uh, when missions began. Uh, missions didn't start, other than uh, the Lord going to maybe Samaria, you could say, or, uh, the occasional Gentile that approached him. Everybody was a Jewish Israeli who was in the church, uh, other than the, those I mentioned, and missions to foreign countries weren't even thought of, of course. But then when the Lord stood on the Mount of Olives, ready to come down the mountain in John 12, and uh, Andrew comes to him and says, the two Greek fellows are waiting outside to see you. He says, my hour has come. It seemed like a signal that uh, it's time now to, since we're going to foreign nations, or since foreign people are coming and wanting to hear the gospel, wanting to see Jesus, then it's time we give it to the apostles and let them take it so they can see him. And uh, that signaled Jesus, I think, that uh, that was uh, the end of his uh, real ministry in Israel. Well, uh, you know, it, uh, when Peter preached the sermon there at Pentecost at the birthday of the church, it was very effective. Uh, 3,000 saved, as we pointed out. They, they spoke the languages of the crowd. They, they listened, and, and then Peter uh, triumphantly at the end, uh, in Acts 2.37, it says, Now when they heard this, that's the sermon from uh, the prophet Joel and about David sitting at the right hand of God and so on. Uh, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Boy, when you've witnessed perfectly, that's what they said. Well, what do I do? <laughs> Those 3,000, of course, were saved, and uh, uh, 5,000 later, uh, in, in Acts 4, the church had 8,000 Jewish members at that time. And, uh, you know, these, the 3,000 that died, well, when the law came, the 3,000 were killed that made the golden calf. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Let's witness, let's take a lesson from the festival of Pentecost, and Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So what was he talking about there when he said the 3,000 that were killed and the 3,000 that were saved? Well, let's look at this real quickly. Turn, if you want to, to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts 2, 41. It says, this was on Pentecost with Peter's message, right? Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So 3,000 were saved through what? Through the Spirit of God. Now, let's go back to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, and I'm going to start with verse 19. Exodus 32, 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire, then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. <laughs> he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? 
Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Like, just magically, out came this calf. Okay. I mean, it's so funny, isn't it? I mean, that sounds like us. Uh, Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Isn't that terrible? But that just shows, you know, Sin is serious and has serious consequences, life and death consequences. Verse 28, the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. So that's what he's talking about there. The law brings death. It, 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 it brings death because we can't live up to it. And because we're sinners, we die to the law because we can't live that kind of life that's perfect but the spirit brings life because the spirit uh redeems us and we are forgiven for that sin and we live so three thousand died on mount sinai but three thousand were saved um through um through what peter did and through passover and i mean through pentecost and the coming of the spirit so that's where that came from that's all i got today That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.